Hello, welcome to Pod Songs, where we interview inspiring people in service to others as inspiration for a new song. Today's musical guest is Creature Comfort, a Nashville-based boot-gazing band. Think Fleet Foxes in a rural setting. Together, we're interviewing Charles Van Rees, a co-host of the Nature Guys podcast, a wetland ecologist, and conservation biologist with expertise in freshwater biodiversity and ornithology. Welcome, Charles Van Rees and Creature Comfort. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. That's that's a lot of people there. There's five, there's five of us, so. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I mean, and we probably won't do much talking, like you said. So. <laughs> that's hilarious. Normally, yeah. I'm you. You know, it's it's me and someone else, and now it's like, it's living. You know, it's yeah. Real. <laughs> real people. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, guys. Hello. Hey. Back Hi. there. How's uh? It's what four o'clock there. In the afternoon? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Four th- nice. uh, 3.30, yep, here nice. in Italy. Perfect. Are you guys in, is it Nashville or? Yeah, Nashville, Tennessee. And are you in the, um, are you in the city or are you in the countryside or in a uh, log cabin or what, where is it? No, <laughs> it looks, it just, no, we're in the city sort of. I mean, we're, I mean, we're in the city proper. Yeah, it's just by the river. Nashville's pretty small, realistically. So the downtown urban area is not very large so you don't have to drive very far to feel like you're not in the city nashville's a strange place though yeah (laughs) i've been through once yeah we um well i guess all of us are from tennessee um and most of us grew up in a small town about an hour and a half south of here so we just sort of went to college uh after high school and then after that moved to nashville and it started sort of went through a boom around 2000, you know, late 2000s and just really became something that it wasn't when we were kids. So yeah, we all think of Nashville as the music town, but I think it's actually the the head of the medical industry as well, isn't it? Is yeah, like, there's a lot of yeah. yeah, I'm actually in the medical field. Oh, so. there we go. <laughs> <laughs> as well, so yeah. Lots of medical here too. Yeah, I heard there's there's mansions as far as the eye can see in uh in uh on the outskirts it's, yeah oh, in yeah. certain parts especially like south and like southwest Th- those are all the country singers <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. here i'm trying to reposition oh, yeah. my head better there yeah. we go well my, my brother moved to texas uh to austin when he was a um, because he's a harmonica player and he wanted to go you know the vision of moving to the music capital of the world and and austin and that was great but um you know that's that's filling up with this because there's low there's low tax rates in in Texas, so everyone from California is moving to Austin, and right. I think you know uh, Tesla and Apple and everyone's just another boomtown. So mm-hmm. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? It's like wherever the musicians go, yeah. You know? Just give it a, give it yeah. a few years and yeah. give it a few. Everyone years. else will follow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I remember too places like Berlin as well. You know, they get become music capitals, and everyone moves into the neighborhoods where where the hip people are and the musicians. 
and then push up the rent prices and then all those people have to move on to an even cheaper neighborhood and yep. it's this it's gentrification cycle yeah that's why we're returning to the country man. <laughs> they, the rest of them don't know it but we're making an exodus back to the homeland back to the cow fields we're gonna be off the grid <laughs> So, so introduce yourself, guys. Where are you? What are you from? What are you doing? The whole shebang. So uh, we are Creature Comfort. We're a band out of Nashville, Tennessee. Um, right now, oh, I think our drummer is actually showing up. Sorry. this <laughs> Drummer's uh, always late. I mean, that's just so stereotypical. Um, but yeah, we're a band out of Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, we've been kicking it for nine years almost, which is kind of a long time to hold a group of people together. We've had a lot of lineup changes, but um, four of us for, are from the same hometown, uh, Tullahoma, Tennessee. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. We make what we call boot gaze, which is like a dialect of indie rock with more slightly Southern influences, I, I, I suppose you could say. Wow, you have your own genre. Well, I mean, you you have to create your own genre. Let's yeah. let's be real. <laughs> everybody everybody likes a hashtag genre, you know. Boot gazing. <laughs> that's least. great. I love it. <laughs> that's you coined the term. Well, right? Shoe gazing. Yeah, I've heard yeah, shoe gazing, but yeah, you mean. We said boot gaze and um, fleet foxes for people who grew up bailing hay. Was the uh, other thing. Because <laughs> he did. He was a Jesse is a big. Hay bale. Well, I <laughs> I grew up on a cattle farm, so well, sort of. I mean, my dad farmed cattle on the side, so I did a lot of farm activities growing up. I heard that your tra favorite tractor is a John Deere six one five five. Well, that's the one I was on. Yeah, that's in our bio. Yeah. Um. No, I mean that that thing was nice. I was like was seven. I mean, it was air conditioned. Like when you have an air conditioned tractor, that's that's something. <laughs> That's no, something else. You've got to paint a nice pic. You know, I imagine you fork in these, fork in the bales of hay, and no, you're you're driving around in in AC. I mean, this is not. Andy's not, listening it, to Revolver yeah. in the tractor. Oh so, no, you get a cassette of the smoking. The he's doobie. probably the yeah, maybe. I don't know. You'd have to ask him about it. Sorry, uh, we're, I'm just trying to reposition so we can all get in the frame. I guess it's irrelevant, but because this is a podcast. Yes, yeah. but the video thing's throwing me <laughs> off. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to be late. I'm sorry. No, it's you. You're good. <laughs> That's good We've had some crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's crazy. I was afraid that like we were going to lose power. We've had some pretty bad storms. Um, like I woke up to thunder and lightning this morning, and uh, so, but luckily it sort of passed for the moment. And so, how many albums have you released now? Two, technically. Full albums. 2.5. Yeah. Know. Here, I'll let you, here, yeah, you sure. talk a bit, Cole. Uh, um, Cole, I play bass and uh, a little bit of backup singing, I guess. Um, yeah, we did. Uh, we've done two full lengths now. Uh, the most recent Witch Home Team came out last year, uh, right before Halloween. Uh, we've got an EP from a few years before that called Echoes and Relics. And then. Um, and then our, our uh, original one um, from, geez, I guess 2000. Yeah, it would have been 2000 and 
2013. You get the baseline so, is that that fantastic baseline on that song, uh, Big Buff and Handsome. That's that's oh, a great baseline. Thanks so much. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, uh, you know, it's a little bit more of a uh, country tune, so I tried to evoke a more walky approach, I suppose, but uh, still keep it, you know modern indie mm. i guess I don't know. and you, you do a lot of seasonal stuff then if you're in halloween i mean you've had christmas in quarantine was uh was another good one mm-hmm. yeah. The, yeah the band's actually just a um, pretext for getting sponsored by hobby lobby <laughs> or pottery barn do you have do you own christmas do you have your own cards as well oh yeah he he oh, made, actually, jesse makes yeah. christmas cards yeah i <laughs> I make Christmas cards that are just absurd, and I always put the text to whatever I'm saying. I'll put in like drippy blood letters. Uh, what was, the, what was it with that scaring that little girl in one video I saw? That was freaky. Oh, <laughs> that was just um, that was just a promo. That was actually our our our, our old drummer's dark. child. <laughs> that was dark. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen yeah. it. It wasn't actually dark. The cut was the edit was dark. The edit was dark. Yeah. <laughs> So this, let's just let's just paint the picture for anyone who obviously who hasn't seen it, is that uh, you're dressed as Father Christmas. A little girl comes and sits on your lap and asks you what you want for Christmas. Well, she she gives, I think she asks for a rocking horse or something nice. And yeah. You, pu- you pull down your beard and you say to her, "Why don't you go and see a a, a creature comfort show?" I mean, yeah. Oh. I'd like to say this is before I joined the group. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. Well, should listen to the guys at the back there. Yeah. <laughs> no, they they make a lot of wise choices because Al and Charlie, they um, you know, wh- how long have y'all been in the band? Two thousand eighteen, essentially. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we you know that's when we went into the studio to make our last record, and we essentially wrote an entire record with our former guitarist, and then we parted away the ways with him about five weeks before we went into the studio Ow. so we frantically Breakups. called charlie and al and they came in and just what happened yeah, come al, on do you want to go into yeah. a breakup story or mm, eh, not really it's um i will say just for context i i play lead guitar this is charlie speaking i play lead guitar and slide guitar and alex plays everything under the sun <laughs> um backing vocals banjo keyboards acoustic guitar um uh, lap steel wow um whatever yeah <laughs> he's gonna do tuba on the next one. <laughs> <laughs> oh banjo is i just love the banjo that's just that's a just grooves a track i mean that that song uh big buff and handsome which has been on repeat for me um <laughs> that it's just that, that awesome. banjo is underneath just pushing things along isn't it that's what just gives it that i would love to have banjo on so many of my songs but i, I can't play it and i don't know anyone here in the south of italy not a big instrument around here yeah <laughs> that, that banjo was a tough sell uh jesse gave me the demo for that song and I sat on it for a little while and kind of tried some different stuff out and picked up banjo to play on it and found that little groove, that little riff and really liked it. And I, it was like, all right, hear me out. Like, what if we put banjo on this like banjo disco song? Yeah, uh, that's it. Banjo it disco. Song, yeah, because the drums up, are also lifting along there. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. yeah. It ended up working out. 
Yeah, I when we went into the studio, we had this idea of what our single was going to be, like the single, you know? And uh, we thought it was going to be our song Heartstrings, which is still like a, you know, good song. But uh, our producer like turned around and he's like, no, that's not your single. He's like, this is your single. And I was just like, whatever, man. But it was after yeah. we had, you know. But that's not boot gazing, is it? That's, that's, that's disco. That's- well. What is that? You could call it dis- hey. you could call that disco rodeo if you wanted to. But, okay, you know. all right, we're gonna draw genre <laughs> yeah, bending it's, here. It's heavy on the boot, light on the gaze. On <laughs> <laughs> boot scooting, but yeah, uh, boot scooting. <laughs> and, who, and the the video is with uh, a Bigfoot, a genuine Bigfoot. Yeah. Where did you find him? Uh, well, we were out in the woods one day, and yeah. Yeah. no, just um, happened to capture it. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> Um, no, that's uh, one of our friends um, is in a costume that was made for the video. So we had a special effects. I guess there's a special effects makeup costume school in Nashville. And we hired the director for the video and he reached out to the school and they turned a Chewbacca into a, you know. Uh, yeah. But he could walk the talk. I mean, he had a real he had a real. The, the gate he's very, is very important he's when you're very tall. Yeah. Yeah. He's just uh, like six, incredibly tall guy. Uh, our friend. Yeah. He's actually a really good musician too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Everybody here plays guitar, I guess. But we <laughs> shot it at a, a, um, a lake around here though. It, I don't think that some of the people just hanging out at the lake could like actually see the cameras. Yeah. Oh, and wow. so like, if you were on a boat, <laughs> looking at the shore you would just see bigfoot in the distance i think it really like, did there, kind of freak some people out like yeah. that, were, that were looking over just like what's going on it, yeah we had bigfoot on the float out in the lake mm. you know i mean it was pretty convincing people at the gas station too were taking pictures right, with the them. local paper following up there was sighting well, that, yeah that's what i was hoping i i really <laughs> free publicity really wanted yeah, 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 really yeah. wanted uh, you know someone to grab it, but it didn't quite go that far. There so were the- there were no rogue TikToks made with the Bigfoot, <laughs> unfortunately. We'll get them next time. Hey, we'll get them next, yeah. And that shoot was so special too because we did that last year, and of course, obviously, the last oh, year yeah. being all COVID and not much to do. Mm. Um, you know, that shoot was just like one of the most pleasant days of the entire year because it was just it was a small crew it was pretty much just us mm-hmm. and director and you know a couple of people helping out and old sasquatch and like it was a beautiful day at the lake and i think it just really came through in the video i think you can tell mm-hmm. like we were having a like much needed joyous day of just like you know wow. love that's nice. great I, i'm not allowed to go into the countryside here in italy it's we're in a red zone so no, i can get yeah. fined if i go into the forest wow. with or without a camera wow. crew not in america baby <laughs> land of the free home of the brave <laughs> and the very sick <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and we're in that with a healthcare capital <laughs> oh, oof. Yeah. so you got, are you guys a bubble then i mean is this is most that what is the term or? yeah most of us point. have been vaccinated really um, so yeah except me i'm the lone it's not that i'm anti i want it i just haven't been able to get it yet but i actually just had covid like two oh. weeks ago really and so i i got some natural immunity kicking for a while wow. so 
how was it uh i mean i wouldn't recommend it um but it wasn't the worst thing i've ever experienced either um for me it was just kind of like a flu and cole got it and taylor got it too and i think for all of us it was like just kind of a bad flu yeah i'm still working on getting the smell back though it's it hasn't totally come back yet mm-hmm. yeah did not know that that, and that the loss of smell and taste again for me when I had it, you know, it there's a there's a really weird psychological component to eating that you don't really recognize when when you're doing it until those uh, senses are uh, you know withdrawn, and then you're like, wow, this is ju- this just tastes like gray bland mush. It doesn't taste, mm-hmm. you know, every time you're that's eating, American food it, though. Well, it is so. So you. So yes, that's where you're. you're that's your baseline, and then you're doubling down with the without the taste or smell, and it just is a miserable experience. It's not really. It's not great. Mm, okay. But we're getting there. Yeah, we got vaccinated, and none of us are. I kept thinking sick, of. So. Have you seen Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story with oh, yeah. John C. Riley? You know, he can't. He can't smell in it, and they're like. Don't you ever stop to smell the roses? <laughs> and he's, he says, "No, I can't." You know, it's like I literally couldn't stop to smell the roses. Um, yeah, that's great. So, so what else is important to know about creature comfort for all the listeners out there? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> wow, the hardball questions. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd say it's something that's important at least jesse's the um you know the lyric writer and i do think he operates a very unique a unique place of like southern coming to age uh, coming of age tunes i don't know many people that um write these type of introspective songs from an american south perspective like coming of age tunes are obviously as old as time, mm-hmm. but it seems to speak to a really unique culture and part of the world and a, a time that seems very unique to people in our demographic and uh, location. I think because mm. songs like what's Common John Southern Shame is that what you, that kind of yeah I think that's I love that one and Woke Up Drunk was another great example of that too i think mm. <laughs> yeah i'm i don't know it's like i'm a progressive i mean we're all progressives living in the south mm. and a very un you know non-progressive place i mean every city i mean generally every city in, in america is blue but you go you know 15 20 minutes outside and it's you know very different mm, okay so talking about our guest then transitioning into uh, we're talking today to Charles Van Rees, who's a, a biologist. So, what was it particularly that made you wanted to speak to to him? Well, uh, he just sounds. I, I don't know. I have a I have a soft spot in my heart for nature. Just I think growing up on a farm and in an air conditioned. I mean, not, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, he'd probably. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, don't, listen. Don't let him fool you, Jesse. Last time we were out at his farm, he's 
He's hitting a lick on it. He's driving cattle around. He's cutting down the fences. We were shooting guns. Don't let him fool right. you. He's not that. No, I mean, but I, I you know, I still. Um, I think this guy's going to stay in the band for a long time, though. He's got the right attitude. Oh yeah. no. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, what am I trying to say here? <laughs> yeah, it's, my my thoughts are, are run away. So I'm a scientist in in the sense that you know I'm in the medical field, and a I just wanted to talk to another scientist, you know, someone that I could relate to at least on you know a certain level. But uh, climate change uh, that kind of keeps me up at night, mm-hmm. and you know. He's not necessarily involved directly with that, but trying to conserve what already exists and, and potentially, you know, prevent it from worsening. And I think that's pretty, pretty cool, pretty hmm. noble. Uh, I got to say, as someone from uh, more the Appalachia region, um, you know, conservation, uh, climate issues have always been extremely important because that area was particularly vulnerable to um you know being abused by coal industry uh different mining industries uh so i think that that you know talking about conservation in terms of community and in terms of southern identity there is a a link Mm. there that i think we you know have dealt with in one way or another that we'd like to explore further is there still a lot of nature in your area or is that has it all been reduced no there's still oh i mean there's a lot of nature but i i think there's probably imbalances though that exist i mean for instance i can think of like when i was 14 um i had a friend who moved uh, he, he moved close by, became my neighbor, and he was from Alabama. And there were these, he would talk about red ant hills. And uh, we didn't have red ants. Well, flash forward two, three years, there were tons of red ants on my parents' farm. They were everywhere, these just huge mounds. And growing up, I would never see armadillos. That's not a thing that you would see in Middle Tennessee. Well, now you'll go on the road and see an armadillo uh, carcass because they follow the red ants. Now, do I know that that's necessarily linked to, you know, an imbalance in nature? Maybe not, but uh, just things like that. Well, I think there's definitely imbalances. There's, uh, yeah, I mean, there's also invasive species. Kudzu in Appalachia is a big invasive species that's completely taken over. Uh, but also with some of these, like there, there still is a lot of nature, but when it comes to a lot of the you know, mining industries in places like, um, you know, West Virginia, um, Eastern Kentucky, you know, Southwestern Virginia, um, that have devastated the land in sort of different ways that, you know, whether it's, you know, poisoning the, the drinking water, the groundwater, or, you know, we see blight on pine trees and things like that species that are going exist they're going extinct um you know the american chestnut tree things like that that we're we're sort of losing like there still is a tremendous amount of natural beauty in the smokies and in the you know greater appalachia but it's it is changing um and there's it's it's changing but it's also an under 
researched under you know developed area that is at risk of sort of falling by the wayside because even yeah you're in america your your parents or your grandparents parents or could they have photos next to huge cedar trees and and and, and fantastic nature no that's gone it well now it's kind of on that note it's like a great irony i've always found in living in the south is that we're by history and agricultural society obviously this was the farming wing of america and even to this day agriculture is a huge part of southern culture people like to go hunting and fishing and all of this and that but the irony is that they don't want to do anything to protect mm. these activities they like yeah they vote in favor of corporations businesses deregulation that uh, uh, undercuts their own interests mm basically and so it's this really strange uh double thing or you know duality that like it seems hypocritical to me at least and i've always ever since i was a kid kind of wondered about like if you love the outdoors and hunting so much why do you bring in corporations that deforest or um do mountaintop removal yeah my folks grew up in small towns in uh, you know, very small communities that had little town squares, you know, with a mom and pop grocery store, mom and pop restaurants. It was all just run by the community and sustained by the community. All those places are now just sort of sitting in ruin, you know, boarded up windows have been pretty much my whole life. And now you see, you know, each town has a Walmart and there's a Dollar General every 10 miles, you know, and that's what the, the entire area just subsists on is, you know, they just had to bend towards these corporations, whether they wanted to or not, but it is part of that, you know, did they make that conscious decision or did this, was this sort of more imposed upon them? I don't know. Right. And it becomes a sort of habit that when you get into corporations coming in from out of town and establishing businesses, uh, places they otherwise not might not be it's like uh, you get kind of a twofold habitat destruction you get the habitat destruction of uh you know like natural species but you also get like a human habitat destruction mm-hmm. in a way you know that the removal of reliance on mom and pop institutions and that sort of thing um so it's a, it's a bit and, more of a meta destruction but you know and i mean not to shift gears too much but i think what one thing that always kind of came across to me in songs like common john are things like well how do you reconcile the fact that there are a lot of aspects about the south that we might not agree with or that we might you know take issue with or um you know see some of the shortcomings of being a southerner living in the south but also have an amount of pride in being a southerner and it's sort of a difficult thing to want to be prideful of where you're from and have pride in your you know where you were raised but also to have to really face um some of the tough issues that your you know region has imposed whether it's you know race issues Mm -hmm. whether it's poor economic issues whether it's you know poor conservation issues 
but also trying to have pride so you're saying it's also the yeah. not just so, the animal species that are under threat but it's also the diversity of of human human sure. culture yeah i mean i think that we lose that sense of that sense of small community mm-hmm. which you know helps sustain each other i mean i think you know 150 well 100 or as recently as maybe 50 years ago even you had smaller communities that were a little more self-sustaining and perhaps um just a little more like sustaining within a more sort of social emotional sense you know and i think we've sort of lost a lot of that and we're especially seeing it in a town like Nashville where people are just moving here in droves and have been for the last almost decade. Um, and it's becoming less and less recognizable. People aren't, you know, communicating in the same ways, places where people do communicate, you know, coffee shops and venues and things like that sometimes go by the wayside. And I think that, you know, getting back to, and especially in a post-COVID world, you know, finding a new sense of community is going to be... Yeah, has COVID accelerated important. this, you think? I don't know. Hard to um, say. I think that COVID, um, like what we're talking about here is like a kind of a fear of homogenization of culture. And I think that's accelerated by the internet because you lose regional identity through big business through corporate expansion and through the internet. And I do think COVID accelerates that because part of a regional identity is things you actually do within the region. (laughs) When you're not allowed to do things within the region and when all of your social activities relegated to the internet, um, we end up all interacting in the Mm -hmm. same way. I think it makes it harder for bands to come through as well. And musicians, because yeah, everyone oh, yeah. just, you know, well, TV programs, everyone just watches this. There's this narrowing, no, and everyone watches the same thing. So so there's that water cooler thing so you can chat about it. But also there's just, yeah, there's this more money spent in this central artist or, or program or, yeah, it's not good for independent artists like ourselves. Uh, workers of the world unite. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Okay, well, just in time. This is Charles. Don't be intimidated here, but uh, we've got a lot of people here. <laughs> I was intimidated, and I and I came on. So <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I'm also like I have to say I'm like an overnight creature comforts fan. I I started listening to the to the new album on the website streaming a couple of days ago, and just like I don't know how many times I've been through it now. It's fantastic. Oh, wow. Thank <laughs> you. That means a lot. Just saying, you Gosh. guys do great work. Holy cow. Well, they've got to do a song about you now. And I think you've already done it. Big Buff and Handsome. <laughs> there you go. Nice. I, in a, I meant nice. that in a non-gay. I'm yeah, a European. <laughs> I'm a European. I can say things yeah. like that without it. Being yeah, <laughs> yeah I, li- I lived in southern Spain for about 13 months and it was a, it was an you needed to learn about touch there it was a whole different language okay well we've been preparing with the show we've been uh, already going deep into into the guys are worried about uh, yeah diversity and um, the way that their local environments changing um, they're in uh, Nashville Tennessee 
Mm-hmm. Um, where are you coming from, Charles? Where are you today? Yeah, usually I have a lot of different answers for that, but with COVID, I'm I'm pretty settled at this point. But uh, for the last year and a half, I've been living on the Flathead Indian Reservation in Northwest Montana. So I work at a biological station for the University of Montana up here. And uh, yeah, it, a lot of it is is still tribal land, thankfully, and um, and that's where I am right now. So the, the town is called Ronan. It's a little tiny village off the highway. <laughs> Wow, I think we're all just pretty jealous right now. That must be a beautiful area. It, it's it's stunning, it, you know, and like every other part of the U.S. that I've lived in, it has its advantages and its disadvantages, um, but it's a very unique place and the beauty is incredible. And this time of year, it is, I mean, really mind-blowing. I, I, I don't think anywhere I've lived in the world, I've seen a spring as beautiful as the springs they have here. I mean, it's mind-blowing. Oh. All right. So, so let's get. <laughs> We're just jealous. I'm in the south of Italy. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, how so can you just... be jealous? I mean, I, I've never made it to Italy, That's... but I imagine. I mean, Mediterranean climate, yeah. and you're probably full blown into spring by now. Migratory birds it's coming beautiful. back. Yeah. You'd love it. You'd love it. <laughs> but uh, I think it's great to speak to you because. Um, so what's maybe it's just roll it off. So you're. Um, What's the difference between um, a biologist and a naturist um, and a conservationist and, and this this whole melting pot? And, and where do you fit into the scheme of things? Sure. Um, that's a very good place to start. And I think, I think my answer to this is always very complicated because I'm just, I would say this is one of my biggest character flaws and perhaps, perhaps an advantage sometimes, but I really, I have a, I have a hard time choosing with things. And my answer to most questions of are you this or this is usually both. And this is applied for me professionally, as well as, uh, you know, in creative and non-professional endeavors like the martial arts, like my answer is always like, yeah, I want all of it. I want to do all of that. So of course, the lines between these various fields are fuzzy. And one of the ways that I'm, you know, sort of trying to brand myself as a professional largely because I think it's something that's really needed is as someone who can move between these different boundaries quite a bit. But to, to start breaking those down a bit. So right, a biologist would be anyone who's you know directly using the scientific method and scientific knowledge to study life in some capacity. And when you start adding sub-disciplines like ecology or conservation biology, then you have you know someone who's using those principles who's using that knowledge to and studying particular aspects of it. I think the difference between a, to make our first division, uh, between a conservation biologist and, and an ecologist uh, or, or a molecular biologist or something like that, is that you, you also are making a jump into the applied from the theoretical. So when we think of sciences, a lot of the time, we think about the ivory tower and we think about people who are creating knowledge in some way and it's totally inaccessible to everybody else and they're the ones on the frontier you know figuring out new stuff that we did not know before whereas if you thought of something like medicine that's an applied science right you're you're yes you're making new knowledge you're using scientific knowledge but you're doing it for a reason right you're like i want to save people i want you know this person in Milwaukee to not die of thyroid cancer. So I'm doing this research, 
right? So when you're when you go over to conservation science, and I think this is one of the things that makes it different, and one of the things that makes it like addictive for me is that I'm I'm doing the science stuff, yes, but the reason I'm doing it is to solve some problem, to address some issue. In, in my case, right, it has less to do with Phyllis in Milwaukee and more to do with you know, the Florida scrub jay <laughs> or something or, or some other endangered taxon, right? Some, some fish in, in, uh, in the Yangtze River that is, you know, it's the last of its kind, things like that. So trying to address some applied purpose in the environment. So that's where we get the conservation side. And that's within the larger science bubble. And the, 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 the science of biology, which is now, of course, a, a very academic science, it grew from something a lot more organic and ancestral, which was natural history. And if you think of natural history, you think of like pith helmets and old white guys running around in the jungle and like, you know, shooting birds and then saying, hmm, what is this? And that's what happened. I mean, you know, there's, because natural history, of course, is a Western, is and was a Western uh, style of thinking, you know, it, it does have a lot of roots in imperialism and colonialism and things like that. Um, but, you know, beyond that, it's, it was a much broader exploration of nature. And so, so, you know, when you think of natural history, its roots were just coming from people just looking around and being like, what is this? What, what is going on? What am I seeing and why? And this, you know, people usually trace this back to Aristotle, who, you know, spent a lot of time on some island near Greece, I think, lying on a dock and staring into the water at sponges and cuttlefish and just like coming up with like cosmic philosophy while staring at basically little squids. I mean, it's amazing. Uh, and Theophrastus, who's I think, unfortunately, a lot of his works were lost, um, but he was another you know major old uh, philosopher who spent time looking at nature. So natural history is this much larger, more organic, in my opinion, kind of colorful approach to understanding the living world around us and some of the non-living world, the natural world, if you want to make that kind of division. Um, and so that can include, you know, people like John Muir, who were, who were writing, you know, who creating beautiful written works of art about these systems while also learning about them. I mean, it's not strictly the science. And so I think you'd have natural history is the biggest thing that gave birth to biology and a lot of other studies of nature. Biology is strictly the, the scientific study. And of course that can go into any aspect of nature, including our genes, you know, our cell membranes, uh, the, the, the proteins created in our bodies and how to engineer them. And of course you get into biotech and all sorts of crazy stuff, but that's what, led to all of these. Um, and so for me, I think, I think <laughs> lately the, the, the titles that I spit out when I am asked to say, you know, why don't you give us your professional titles or whatnot? I usually say conservation scientist, which is my professional discipline, naturalist, which is like my way of being in the world. Like I just, I want to be out in that and, and learning about it and experiencing it, being a part of it. Uh, and then nature communicator is usually the third one, which is one of the ways that I see as just a citizen of the world, I can be contributing to the conservation crises that I perceive in ways that are, I don't want to say more or less effective. A lot of people make that judgment call, but I would certainly say in a way that does not overlap with my science in a big way. And so I can really be addressing very different problems. So that is my multi-pronged, very long response <laughs> to that question. That's a great answer. That was really good. So what got you into this? You were interested in nature and you, you, wanted, you wanted to be a scientist because you wanted to make a difference. Is that how it worked out? Or Kind of. I mean, obviously, it was a lot messier than that. And 
I think that, you know, the normal story you hear from people in my field, especially people who fit my demographic of being, you know, <laughs> like white men who, who, who had a lot of privilege and grew up in a place like the US or the UK who, who you know, got to have educational opportunities and things like that. Um, the, the usual story you hear is like, yeah, you know, I just loved tigers as a kid. And then I went and became a biologist and here I am. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say my story is that, that simple. Um, but I think it, it follows, it follows the archetype a bit for me, you know, the, the science part always, I, I, my father is an engineer and a scientist and I, I grew up hearing about science all the time and thinking, gosh, you know, what a powerful way of knowing. So I always had this idea that I would be a scientist, but, uh, I was a terrible student. <laughs> Realistically, I, I just, I couldn't pay attention to school. I had too much energy. It, it just wasn't, it really wasn't working for me for a while. I think I had very little focus uh, and I was terrible at math. And so my hopes of becoming a scientist were not great in the first place. Um, but I did, I did connect with nature a lot. And, and for me, it was less about, you know, tigers and, and the discovery channel and a lot more about, you know, Oh, what time of year do those grasshoppers come out? When do I start hearing the cicadas? You know, it was, it was backyard stuff. I was just there in it. And that was, that was beautiful. Uh, for me, and it, and it was it was a place where I guess my energy and my shifting attentions could be really focused on something. And what really changed things for me, in a lot of ways, and I guess this is you know tying into the other main thing that I'm always blabbing about to people. But honestly, what what really did it for me, I think, what led to where I am now was was studying the martial arts, um, which sounds strange. Uh, and that's its own very long and convoluted journey with, you know, vicissitudes of decades. But I think what that did for me was offer a lot of focus and it showed me that I could be good at something. And that led to me suddenly saying, oh, well, maybe I can, you know, try in school. Maybe that's worth it. Maybe I, you know, if I apply myself, things can work. Um, and the other thing it did was the angle to which I approached the martial arts, especially at the beginning, uh, was rooted in a lot of old philosophy, um, East Asian philosophy that I was getting really interested in. And, and we can, you know, whatever time we have, we can get into that maybe eventually, but, but there was a lot of, a lot of principle in that around what it means, uh, to live a full life. And one of the, one of the big things that came up, especially in the sort of martial arts and, you know, warrior tradition oriented philosophies was, well, you have to protect something. If you have, I don't know what you want to call it, martial prowess or some power or some ability, right? It's meaningless. It's even destructive to the universe if you're not using that for some larger good. And so, so it kind of, the two things I got from that were like, one, yeah, maybe I can be good at stuff. And that was, <laughs> you know, I think for a lot, of, a lot of young people, that can be a revelation, just realizing I can do something. And then the second one was, oh, but, you know, if I'm going to do something, I might, I really need to. I need to help others with it. And that and it ended up this making this kind of synthesis for me of like, wait a minute, I can study nature, I can do science. What if I do that to protect nature and to help people? So that's that's what mm. that's what led here. Um, and it and it certainly was not as clear as it sounds. <laughs> you know, it's no, it, well, it, great. It I mean, a lot, a lot of the guests, all the guests are trying to service to others. So and they've been very macro focused, you know, I've been done a lot of songs already about global warming or the nuclear threat or the, the big problems. But mm -hmm. hoping to speak to you, we could go down to more of a, a micro level. And, you know, how bad are things we hear about species extinction and, you know, 
every second but how bad are things i mean where you are is is an untouched area surely is it is it bad everywhere or what's what's going on yeah i mean i i <laughs> i might push back on on even montana being an untouched area i think we don't we don't have a lot of untouched areas on this planet um mm. which is which is really a disturbing truth but a very very real truth um we you know uh and i <laughs> I'm going to try really hard to keep this micro for you, but these issues I'm going to, I, and this might be, this might be one of my goals for today is to, is to convince you and whoever's listening that biodiversity issues are extremely macro. Uh, I would say aggressively macro. And in fact, they're degree just of, blown my idea out of the water. <laughs> there you go. Know, we can, we'll get micro. I promise we can talk about micro, like very <laughs> small organisms. We can also talk some about some smaller yeah, nice. systems. We absolutely can't. Um, but, oh, I, thanks, thank you. But, but I will definitely say that like that not only are biodiversity issues macro, but they are so much more in your face macro than a lot of the other macro things that you think about. So um, you had a wonderful podcast recently with da David Powell. Is that his name? Who was from yeah. the Sustainable and, and just a fantastic talk about climate change. Just amazing. Um, the more direct part of the planet that we interact with and that interacts with us through climate change is going to be biodiversity. So if you think about biodiversity affecting us in some way, there's this intermediary that is the life of the planet other than us. And that's, you know, that is biodiversity. That's all of that. That's where all these, a lot of these impacts are going to come, not just the abiotic, what we call, you know, the non-living world, the storm surge getting worse, um, temperatures getting wonky, whatever. The biosphere controls so much of what makes this planet livable. It's not just like, oh, yeah, we're a perfect distance from the sun and the it, Earth is tilted a certain way. Like we also life needs to rely on other life. You can't just start it like that. And even, you know, the, if you look at the origins of life, it's some pretty fascinating, weird, coincidental stuff. And if you didn't have that to begin with, you'd never be here. And so if we eliminate that life, even if we even if we saw, you know, solved even if we even if we address climate change issues, kept the temperatures from increasing too much, uh, if the biosphere still gets wrecked, which is what's happening right now, we're still hosed. And it doesn't matter what we did about our carbon emissions. So it's a very, yeah, the, anyway, <laughs> big, big macro there. Um, so the, sorry. So the question was about, um, was about... Yeah, Where right. are we biodiversity? Because I mean, right? we've seen uh, Jesse was telling us about red ants and armadillos just before you came on, and how he was seeing just in his lifetime these changes. Big time. Is this with the fire ants? Yeah. Yeah. Like when I was 14, um, I had a friend who moved from Alabama to Middle Tennessee, and he would talk about fire ants being in these like red ants and how they'd be everywhere and we didn't have them i grew up on a farm in middle tennessee and within two years you would see these ants everywhere and when i grew up you would never see armadillos like i would see those sometimes traveling and then you know now you'll see armadillo carcasses on the side of the road it's like they followed the the ants now the ants are gone elsewhere but i don't know if that's they're part of their life cycle or if that was you know yeah due totally. to something else right. but and i'm not <laughs> i'm definitely not an, an ant expert by any means but i mean you know what that sounds like <laughs> to me is it's just very typical biodiversity change environmental change which is what we're witnessing today right where, where our actions as humans 
are affecting these biological processes in so many weird and unexpected ways. And I'm going to, I'm going to run with that example a bit. And for any, you know, ant experts listening or armadillo experts listening, if I'm way off, I'm sorry, but, (laughs) but you know, what you could take, (laughs) what you could take from this as an example is like, you know, at least my understanding is that there's, there's been a species, I think of South American fire ant that's been spreading through the American South. When I, when I worked in Florida, that was a big worry. And that's probably the right answer you're talking about. I don't, I'm not sure. Um, Okay. (laughs) Right. So that's an example of, of a concept of invasive species. And invasive species are a human impact, even though they are a natural thing or a biological thing. And what's going on there is, right, people in all of our doings and movings and livings of the world, we have moved organisms to a new place because we want them or don't, or, or they got moved there accidentally by some process. And then they totally mess up, you know, whatever equilibrium and intricate systems are going on there, the, you know, the natural balance, if you want to get really cliche about it. The problem is that makes this huge ripple effect, right? The biological systems are this big net. It's this big, like woven tapestry and you can't just grab part and go, Oh, you go over here. Like everything else starts to get stretched and displaced. And so what I'm at least hearing with the armadillo thing is, you know, armadillos, as far as I know, are, are just native to a lot of the Southern U S and so that, you know, they, they themselves, their population dynamics, dynamics, all that was pretty natural and baseline. But I'm guessing what happened is because they're, you know, they, they will eat a lot of ants. One thing that might've happened was this invasive species came in. We know it had all sorts of other really bad impacts. It's been driving ground nesting birds extinct. It's been causing problems for all sorts of other insects, but it was probably benefiting the armadillos. And so it probably, you know, made armadillo populations go totally wacko when they wouldn't have before, because suddenly there was this you know, new food source that was aggressively invading the whole South um, and probably other elements in there too. Like maybe people aren't hunting them as much or, or what have you, but, um, but yeah, that, that leads into, I guess the, the, how are we doing? Um, which unfortunately is macro, but we, if we, if we shrink it down to enough examples, maybe we can make this more micro, but uh, people, geologists, especially there's a, there's an ongoing debate right now, and I'm pretty sure it's leaning towards yes, but there's a, there's a debate essentially of naming a new geological epoch in which we are right now. So the different geological epochs, right? Are these, I'm not a geologist, so I'm going to mess this up, but a giant, you know, giant lengths of time defined by certain main drivers of what was going on on the planet at the time, you know, so there were like giant ice ages and, you know, different like one of the epochs I think was when algae and stuff started to make oxygen for the first time. And there was this huge increase in oxygen in the plant's atmosphere, which we didn't have before. And actually that oxygen was toxic to like most life and like tons of stuff went extinct because nothing could handle oxygen, you know, and everything that's left today, we're all descendants of those few microorganisms that could withstand oxygen. So there's a new epoch proposed called the Anthropocene. (laughs) Anthro being, you know, the root people, and the idea is like, we are now the dominant anything on the planet. We're not even just the dominant biological force. We're the dominant geological force. Like we are basically like the asteroid, <laughs> like coming in and just boom and just wrecking everything. And just because we are, we're changing everything, right? We're not just like, oh my gosh, like all the elephants are gone because we couldn't stop buying ivory. Like we are changing everything to its very core below the biology. We're changing you know, uh, the heights of the tides, we're changing the ocean levels, we're changing the ice caps, right? So 
where we are right now, I would say, is the Anthropocene. We're in this time when, like, you literally can't find something we haven't impacted. You know, people have gone out with microphones and and tried to find um, where in the world you can find places where you don't ever hear human noise. And I don't remember what the statistic was, but like it was basically nothing. Like there 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 almost aren't places you can go anymore where you won't hear a plane go over, where you won't hear like I don't know a radio or or like some loud you know motorbike engine in the background. We are, there's almost nothing left. Um, or if you want to think about like, another good way to think about it is like weight, like the actual physical amount of stuff, like the mass, right? And again, I don't have the actual numbers on me, but it's something crazy where like, you know, probably on the order of like seven eighths of the living matter of the planet is like people, cows, and chickens. And so, and so like, like it's insane. Like, like, like just, just the weight of, of living meat in the world of just like, like, you know, animal flesh, like something crazy, like, like, like almost 90% of it is just us and the animals that we like. And we've eliminated everybody else. (laughs) And like all of the biodiversity in the world, all the rainforests, all the whales in the ocean, all of that makes up for like the tiniest sliver of the actual weight of living organisms on the planet. It's insane. And the same goes for like the numbers too. I, again, I, <laughs> I don't want to like horribly misquote, but also something crazy, like, you know, one, I don't know, one fourth or one fifth of, of just all individual animals or something is, is like a cow, you know, it's just, it's, we have really taken over so much more than we think. And we keep having this image that there is like beautiful, wild, land out there and there's something left untouched because we've been feeding ourselves that myth forever and it's not true anymore it it's gone and and wow. we have to do something about that that was real that's a macro bummer i'm it's important i think to to put it in mm. blunt terms that way because you know i just feel like are we going to talk about it or not? You know, like, are we going to, we have to sing about it. this and like recognize the, yeah. I mean, are we going to sing about it? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it, either we're talking about it or not, well, we're not going to. And I, I think it's important to just get it out. I'm with you hundred percent, honestly. And I think, I think singing about it is probably way more effective. I think a lot of, I mean, obviously how you talk about it matters, you know, but I haven't seen that many people try thinking or uh, singing about it. <laughs> so do you think all these invasive, because you're, you're, you're focusing on species extinction, and do you think that these invasive species are, are, are replacing them? I mean, there's also dengue fever, mosquitoes, all the boundaries are changing. No, we're having to, we're getting a lot more viruses coming through mosquitoes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Is it? Mm-hmm. Oh boy. Yeah, there are just so many giant cans of worms here. So I interestingly, so I mean, most of my background and experience is with endangered species. And, you know, what I was, you know, if I sit down with somebody on the plane, they're like, what do you do? You know, I always try to say, well, I just try to keep things from going extinct. I, I try to make sure that like, <laughs> you know, everybody we're taught, everybody here right now, if y'all have grandkids or something, I'm like, I want your grandkids to see this bug or whatever it is. I want it to still be here. But I mean, my, my current job, um, I'm moving on to another job actually in a week, but my current job is invasive species focused. Um, and it, there are all these, there are multiple things, you know, acting at once. There's never a simple solution here, but one of the major players in species extinctions 
are these invasive species. They're huge and their impacts oh. are rapidly accelerating. And you hit a really, really good point there, Jack, where we are actually, we are turning the tables towards these invasive species with how we're changing the planet. So with climate change, with landscape change, like us developing landscapes, cutting down more rainforests, we are like terraforming a lot of the time, these environments specifically to favor the invasives. And so a really good example up here, again, this is not an untouched landscape at all. Um, you know, and it's, I think calling it untouched is probably extreme anyway, right? Because there, there have been native peoples here for thousands of years and they certainly interacted with the landscape in very direct ways. But um, what we're seeing here, for example, is we have, we have an endemic fish species. So endemic meaning you cannot find it anywhere else. So it's a major tourist draw for Montana. They make a lot of their money through, you know, rich people coming to do their fishing and hunting and stuff. And so there's this, there's this West Slope cutthroat trout, and it is adapted to these high mountain stream, like Glacier National Park is right here. It's a major ecosystem here. Um, it's adapted to these cold, you know, icy high mountain streams. And that's where it can do its thing. And it's the best, you know, competitor. It's perfectly adapted to that. It's been doing that for, I don't know how many, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of years. And what's been happening is, especially I think starting in the 1800s, the people started to introduce um, rainbow trout, which are delicious and really fun to fish for. They started to introduce them all over here so that people, you know, just to boost the tourism industry. What's happening now is that those rainbow trout, which are not as well adapted to living in these really specialized places, they're taking over. They're outcompeting these native trout. They're also, they're in the same genus. So they're actually breeding with them. And so there's this genetic dilution going on where the actual genes of these, you know, of this species are getting wiped out. So it's a weird, it's an extinction by hybridization, right? They're not just getting wiped out and outcompeted, which they are, but they're also getting like bred out of existence, right? It's a weird dynamic. And what's making this way worse is that we are changing the climate and the landscape. They, what, what people have noticed is that like, if you have more development and more roads and stuff around these uh, rivers and streams, then the rainbow trout do better and they win over more often. Uh, meanwhile, if, you know, if it's cold and icy and, and like normal Montana conditions, the West Slope, the native species does way better. But as climate change continues, that cold area is shrinking and going higher and higher up the mountains, right? So the refuges, the places where these native species can still live are shrinking and they're losing ground because of it. And this is happening all over the place where once we've disrupted what's there, we favor those invasives over the native species. And, and yeah, I mean, we, we, it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a, what do you call that? A positive feedback loop, right? These things are both affecting each other. And then you get this, this perfect storm. Um, so the inter, so invasive species are a big, a big problem in general. They are definitely corresponding with climate change to get even worse a lot of the time. Okay. And <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, for a minute, talking about invasive species, Alex was oh man talking about kudzu earlier. He's Appalachia, and so um, yeah, if you want to ask a little bit about that, because I'm curious how climate change will affect something like kudzu, mm -hmm. which I've seen my whole life. You know, yeah, as far as like the um, what's kudzu? There's a ton for, of kudzu. For -Americans. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it's like a vine 
that grows extremely fast and looks like kind of almost like ivy that can cover things. And I mean, it will just cover everything. And they say in the summertime, it can grow almost a foot a day or something crazy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it grows so fast uh, and we'll just cover everything. And um, there's also been a lot of blight that's killed uh, or will like infect pine trees and they'll sort of rot and die out. Um, and the American chestnut, which I think they're bringing back or they've tried to bring. I don't mm -hmm. even know where the status of that is right now, but that's a, a species that was sort of, as far as I know, indigenous to that sort of region that uh, eventually just went extinct, probably because of that, mm -hmm. some sort of blight. Yeah, an invasive pathogen, right? Yeah. So like for sure. Yeah, I mean, those are all such good examples. Like, you're, I mean, you're, you're. I think you're just bringing up so many good points there. Yeah, kudzu. I, I haven't spent enough time in the South. Weirdly, I, I will say, so I'm actually moving to Georgia in a few months. So I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be in the South for quite a while, pretty soon. Um, so I'll be getting very what's, familiar. What's with the next kudzu. job? Uh, the next job is gonna be with the River Basin Center at the University of Georgia. Um, really do honestly doing the stuff that I love. So do, doing a lot of, um, a lot of research on the interactions. So basically, you know, we have, we have society on one side and biodiversity and ecosystems on the other side, or this is how we like to perceive it. Right. And there are all these different ways we interact. And my focus and my interest is in, is in where water is the thing that we're interacting through, right? It's the medium through which we are getting impacted by life by, by wildlife and by ecosystems. And one of the major ways that we are affecting those systems. Um, so that's, that's what I'll be focusing on there. Uh, and after actually looking at some synergies. So we're going to be working with the, the army Corps of engineers trying to figure out, okay, you know, we know floods are going to get worse in the South. We know that those floods are going to hurt a lot of people, a lot of very vulnerable people too, right? Those are the first people who are going to be harmed by this. How can we use natural systems, restore and fix natural systems around water to protect those water resources for people who need them, but also protect the people from things like, you know, catastrophic flooding and, and things like that. So that's, that's going to be my kind of job there is trying to kind of mutually and synergistically meet the needs of wildlife conservation and, and people. Um, Save the people but, and the water and the, and the yeah. plants. Yeah. Animals. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, if, if you, if you just, I think we're already hitting upon this a little bit, right? If you, if you think about nature um, and and ecosystems and the Anthropocene, you see this just massively complicated tabernacle, right? Just, just ecology itself and the ecosystems are so immensely complicated. And, and the only ones that we have like a reasonably good understanding of are usually in temperate regions like UK and Northern North America, where they're kind of simple, there aren't a ton of species, and we've studied them for like 100 years. And that's the only time we have any remotely good understanding of how these things work. So you think about this massively complicated system, and then you add in people, right, with our culture and our politics and our economics and everything. How much more complicated does that become? I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't, you know, process those things in a gigantic supercomputer. It's, it's way too much. And so what you have to do, right, when you're faced with a system that's that complicated, you have to look for, gosh, what's a good word for it? You know, you have to look for the central nodes. You have to look for the, the core of that system, right? If there's all these different moving parts, maybe you could find one little switch that if you turn that, it makes a ton of difference, right? 
Whereas there's maybe parts on the periphery that don't do anything if you mess with them. And so it, in my mind, what I'm seeing in my research and what makes me so interested in water is that I think water is one of those major things where if we focus on that, we can start saving more species. We can start protecting more people. We can start addressing climate change. We can start, you know, being more resilient to planetary shifts that threaten us. You know, we can we can protect underserved communities, things like that. So in my opinion, water is that like perfect little spot where if we're going to put a bunch of effort in, that's where we want to do it. And it can affect all these different things at once. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's the water thing. How much have you how much have you seen like uh, in some of these species, like cultural significance of things like that trout in Montana. I mean, how much does that play a role in, in what you do and how you go about the work you do, like in maintaining, you know, the cultural relevance or importance of regional specific. Wow. Species. Wow. You guys, <laughs> you guys have really good, good questions. Good, bandit, good questions. I, I'm like, yeah. This is fantastic. Dang. Um, I would say it, 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 it impacts my work a bit depending on the system I'm working in. And now we can get a little more micro, I suppose. But I want it to impact my work a lot more. And that's part of why I'm getting so into nature communication and you know nature podcasting and nature storytelling is because I want to recreate the cultural significance. I think that is one of the main things we're, we can do to get society to care about this stuff. So... Mm -hmm. You know, one example out here that's that's a little bit looser, but um, the the West Slope cutthroat trout the, is one of the major species I'm working on here in terms of preventing invasives from wiping them out. They have, uh, as far as I understand it, a pretty strong cultural significance uh, to a lot of the First Nations or native indigenous people out here. The Salish, Kootenai, Pondere, uh, Blackfeet, a bunch of other tribes that, that you know, passed through or, or inhabited this area at various times. Um, and so there is cultural significance there. And there is interest, you know, from uh, tribes and people working with the tribes in, in protecting these things solely for their intrinsic value. Right. And I think that is what I find most valuable about cultural significance in conservation is that we're not just like, oh, you know, like so much of our world now is just driven by dollars. I don't want to sound quite so, you know, dour and, 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 and cliche about it. Right. But like, we are just in this like intensely neoliberal period in history where if we don't put a dollar on something, no one gives, no one cares. And the number of things that still have intrinsic value that are not related to the dollar sign are fewer and fewer. And that really scares me. And so I think, I think, um, and this is a product of Western colonial culture, right? I mean, this this grabby, money, greedy attitude, th this came from, you know, our European ancestors showing up on new continents and being like, I can make so much money here. I'm going to pretend that this is about Jesus. I'm going to pretend that we are going to, you know, that we're going to save everybody by bringing them closer to God. But I, really, I'm just going to make a ton of money. Right. And that's why, like, so many European countries are like loaded. When I was in southern Spain, you know, I mean, I visited this. There's a gigantic cathedral in Seville, the city I lived in. I could, I could see it from my apartment. It's beautiful where Christopher Columbus is buried. He's there like 
And he was, you know, he was part of this gigantic, supposedly religious, but largely economic thing where people were going to places they didn't understand. They didn't have any intrinsic value of the wildlife. They had no uh, cultural connection to those ecosystems. And what was their opinion of everything? Money. Let's just, oh man, let's grab all the gold. Let's get all the silver. And if you go into those cathedrals now, they are, I mean, it is, yeah, it's beautiful. It's stunning, the artwork and everything. But literally there are like walls of gold just like beautiful statues of Mary and Jesus and like crazy religious stuff. And it's all gold and it's all silver. And where did that come from? Right. And right outside mm -hmm. they have a massive ficus tree in the fig family, ficus tree. Those aren't native to Europe. Where did they get that tree? They, <laughs> that's a rainforest tree from the, from the American tropics, right? It's all there. And so, yeah, I, I think I think we and by we, you know, I, I mean the largely, you know, Anglo-Saxon, uh, uh, Western European, you know, dominant economic and cultural power on the planet today, certainly for worse. Uh, that group of people who are so in charge of the world today in so many ways, we have so much to learn from our older ways before things became more like that and so colonially focused and so much to learn, especially from indigenous people. And it's, it's not their responsibility to do this. You know, it's our responsibility to learn from it, but it's not their responsibility to teach us or help us. We got ourselves in this mess, but we need to learn how to assign intrinsic value to these things again. And I'll, and I'll give you, <laughs> I'll give you the example that I always pull out on people who like, I don't know, push me on this stuff. Cause it happens to be all the time, especially living in an area with a lot of very, uh, conservatively minded people, people are always like, come on, man. Like they're always, you know, they're always trying to like be, I don't know, be clever because they read a couple books and they're always like, Hey, extinction happens all the time. The dinosaurs are extinct. Mm -hmm. What's the problem? And this is always the example I, I, I pull out. I said, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's annoying, right? You get these like trolls, but they have a, you know, they have a point in it. You have, I mean, <laughs> you have to engage with people. I, I, I as angry as some of this stuff makes me, I, I'm not gonna. I, at least I, I think you know, being part of that, of that larger, you know, uh, uh, white male power structure. I think it's kind of my job. I need to be the one who engages with those people from my demographic and says, no, no, you can't think like this. Anyway, the example I pull out is this: people die all the time, right? Do we do we feel reasonable about that? That's a thing, right? Oh and and a lot of people die yes. nowadays from cancer. Mm. So let's think about it. We've got yeah. a two-year-old kid in some big hospital, and this kid has some kind of, I don't know, juvenile onset leukemia that, who knows, maybe it's from his or her genes, or it's from some kind of environmental exposure, but basically this child is going to die in six months. Unless we, unless we invest $3 million. If you go around and ask all these people, well, what should we do? You know, the majority of them say, Oh my gosh, that's awful. I mean, we have to do something. We have to save this kid. Why do they say that? I don't think it's because the kid's worth money. They don't want to give up. We're not about to go sell this kid's organs in the black market. Right? We right? I mean, I don't know. Some people are weird. But like we're 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 assigning intrinsic value to a human life. 
right? How much trouble do we go through if if somebody, you know, I don't know, some some 30-year-old hiker, you know, gets their arm jammed in a rock or whatever. We go out and save them. We go pay for a helicopter, do all this crazy stuff. Now, what if somebody is, you know, 97 years old and their heart's worn out and they're just going to die? Well, yeah, we'll do stuff to save them. But, you know, I think a lot of people say, okay, well, yeah, they're 97 years old. I get it. They might say something cliche like, oh, well, that's life. You know, that they lived a good life. The intrinsic value there is that we're saying that there's a value to human life and there's a, and there's a value to getting to live that life, right? That's what everybody always says about like trying to, you know, save children especially, right? Is, is like, well, yeah, but they didn't get to live their life yet. What's the difference between that and a species? Yeah, people die all the time. Yeah, species go extinct all the time. But the difference is with, you know, the, the, the cancer baby argument, that child is not getting to live their life something we intrinsically value. If we're driving a species extinct now that in all likelihood had, you know, geological timescales left in its existence, right? Why, why do we have the, why, why don't we intervene? Why do we have the right to just, if we cause that to happen, why don't we stop it? And, and, and if you don't assign any intrinsic value, there's, there's no argument there, but I think we need to reestablish that. Not just because in my opinion, all of these species are intrinsically valuable, but again, we rely on this thin film of life wrapped around the planet. If that's gone, that's it. And each one of those species plays some role in that, in its stability and its performance, right? With these ecosystem services. So yeah, I think we need to bring back that cultural value. It's really, really uh, important and it makes a huge difference. I, I did my whole PhD on a couple of endangered uh, water birds in Hawaii and I ended up being really fortunate to interact with a lot of indigenous people from Hawaii and learn a lot about uh, the the role that some of these animals had in their cultural heritage, in their mythology, in their stories. And that drastically increased the acceptance rate and the interest and the willpower people had in saving those birds. Because it was like, no, no, this isn't just whatever duck you know, in the swamp. This is the Alaula. This is this animal that brought fire to our people. This is this, you know, hugely important figure. This was this was the the pet bird of, you know, Hina, the goddess who was the mom of the Hawaiian Hercules, you know, Maui, who's in that, you know, Disney movie now. Um, that cultural importance makes it totally different because we go from, you know, the lowest level of valuing wildlife, which would be like, it's entertaining to us or it's useful to us which is kind of like ownership, which is, I guess, something you're assigning some value. It brings us way beyond that to something more like kinship. We don't just say you're useful to me, right? You wouldn't treat another human being that way, I hope, right? You wouldn't just be like, ah, this, this guy can do a favor, you know, do me a favor, that's great. You're, you know, instead you're feeling like, no, no, like I, we're the same here. We have something in common. And so I, I respect that, I see that. And I wanna, have some moral obligation to that, right? Um, so that huge rant aside, I think that yeah, I think cultural, I think cultural values to wildlife are the most important thing right now for conservation. I think we need to just change people's attitudes. I, I think, you know, I love the science work I get to do. It's tremendously, you know, intellectually engaging. It's fantastic. But if we're not changing the culture side right now, we're in big trouble. And that's 
that's where the nature communicator thing comes in for me uh, is I'm trying to help resurrect that. Yeah. This was something that we kind of touched on earlier with, uh, you know, seeing some of our communities that we grew up in, like small communities in the South sort of lose some of their regional specificity and then just get taken over by bigger corporations. Now you've just got, you know, Walmarts and, Hardee's and whatever where it used to be mom and pop shops and you know this and that and so you know I think a lot of those regions were also tied inexorably in some way to the you know regional you know climate and the regional biodiversity and specific you know species that live there um, but I think it's it's definitely true, and I, I think there's such a connection to be made between losing some of that sort of biodiversity and that specificity, and you know, losing that sense of cultural like interpersonal connection. But we've also lost that interspecies connection as well, where it just doesn't we don't see that intrinsic value. Yeah, we feel I feel like we as a species are totally disconnected from nature at this point i think Mm -hmm. i kind of feel like part of that has to do with just like Mm. how we get our food now oh yeah um i think like i think that really on a subconscious level sort of you end up devaluing other life because you're eating it but you also don't have to see how you know like what Mm -hmm. had to happen for that to take place you know um and a whole other list of factors i'm sure but the one that comes immediately to mind is yeah the way we consume food and how it's i will say to that note i feel like one good thing that could come out of covid is i do think it made people actually think about the mm. supply chain mm-hmm. like the thing just doesn't magically <laughs> appear at kroger like you don't you know you don't snap your fingers and get cheerios like someone has to bring it in a truck someone has to grow the wheat somewhere and i do think that maybe if there's you know there might be a few good things to come from this whole pandemic thing and i think that might be one of them is an awareness of the supply chain that could lead back to an awareness of the first stop in the supply chain which Mm. is often nature whoa Mm. And another that is really speaking about supply chain. I mean, even more recently, the Suez Canal <laughs> block. Yeah, you know, gosh. like I gotta imagine. You know, we're. I mean, I would think you know, fruits, vegetables, anything that comes from other parts of the world toward wherever it's going, you know, is going to have significant difficulty. So, like, you've got. COVID screwing with the supply chain, but now you've got this. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, yeah. you seen the photos. That's what's happening. You know, I mean, it's, it's plugged up. I, I hate when my canal gets <laughs> the worst. Yeah. It makes you aware of that level of, what do you call that? Globalization of it. You know, I mean, it's wild. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you guys, <laughs> you're just hitting on so many like just massive points it's have you i mean it's, it's as if you guys down to a song so <laughs> yeah well they have they have but we have to narrow this down into a song so so what's the most important because you're doing a ted talk soon aren't you about natural history and the outdoors as fuel for innovation mm. um what's that going to be about 
Yeah, so that's obviously with, I don't know how many times that's been postponed now with COVID stuff. And so we'll see, we'll see where that happens. But that's in, yeah, there's a, um, there's a TEDx group in Bozeman uh, in Southwest Montana, a really cool area. And uh, yeah, I, they, they had invited me, geez, well, yeah, just about a year ago. Um, and I think, we're, I think we're finally thinking things might shake out in October. But that talk is about kind of another approach that I'm trying to take to get people to start connecting with and valuing nature more. And, and specifically, I would say targeting some demographics that I think have a gigantic power to make a big difference. And I think they're, you know, I think people from all different kind of uh, career levels and, and, you know, different avocations and, and pursuits and disciplines and things have a major role to play in this. I, I don't think that there's a type of person or a type of professional who, who can't do something amazing for nature right now. But um, one group that I'm, I'm focusing on a lot is um, entrepreneurs and, and, business people and CEOs and people who have to think at really, really high levels uh, with, you know, huge demands on their uh, intellectual capabilities and, and thinking uh, uh, and creative energy. And, you know, there's, there's a a really increasing amount of, amount of literature showing how exposure to nature can essentially just chemically alter your brain, right? In, in ways that are very favorable to your creativity, to your mental and emotional health. Um, you know, if you're a spiritual thinker, I think it's undeniable that it's, it's doing something major for you in that capacity. And at the same time, if you want to get more literal, think of the amount of inventions and innovations and new ideas that have just come directly from nature. Right, I, I can't remember what it is now. It's it's maybe something as high as thirty percent or more of just medicines and pharmaceuticals were either directly synthesized from living organisms, right? Because uh, uh, plants and animals and fungi and microbes all over the planet all the time are in these just constant, intense. I don't want to call them wars, but these 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 you know these kind of almost contests. What's that? Struggles. Yeah, yeah. Something. Struggles. It's, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to paint this like old-fashioned, you know, nature red and tooth and claw uh, uh, portrait of it. But there's this. There's this constant process of innovation through how evolution works, through how genetics work. Um, that means that like you have just this, just the entire planet, all of that wild biodiversity is this gigantic laboratory, constantly coming up with new chemicals, new strategies, new mechanisms, new structures, right? That didn't exist before, or that maybe didn't. They're coming back that are addressing all these different biological tasks. And so what we've found is that like, you know, we, we haven't even scratched the surface on the number of biologically active compounds that come from plants that can be found all over the world. And those have already, that tiny bit that we've already seen has already contributed hugely to just medicine. And then if you go beyond chemicals to actual physical structures, right? Velcro came from a plant, that, that idea, right? Uh, there are people trying to make better landing gear for aircraft that have to land in sandy environments based on how camel feet are structured. You know, there's just, there's so much inspiration you can find in nature that is direct and that's huge. And there's so much benefit you can get to how creative you are 
from being in nature just because of how it changes your brain chemistry. And then the third thing, which I'm really trying to start pointing people towards is that, you know, we're human beings. We're not, I don't know, macaques or foxes or whatever, you know, we're, we're beyond just like the tool using intelligence. We also have a lot of abstract thinking. We can make metaphors. We can make art. We can think about things, you know, beyond just the literal and the mechanical. And so think about the enormous amount of innovation you can get from observing and learning about nature that is abstract. How, how, how well can you find solutions to things by analogy with nature, by studying how these different organisms are interacting beyond just, oh, let me imitate that one mechanism in the way the mantis's claw works, or let me steal that chemical from, you know, that leaf of a tropical aerial plant. But, but how can I find solutions to my problems in life and in business by observing how organisms solve their problems, by, by witnessing how um, ecosystems change over time. How can I find, you know, people even use ecological terms now in business, right? They talk about uh, uh, disrupting uh, business ecosystem, you know, whereas like if you have a forest and it's um, totally locked in with some what we call climax tree species, they're shading everything out and no, no other saplings can grow. If you burn it down, right, all these new species will arise, a whole new ecosystem comes up and it goes through this process of succession. And a lot of, a lot of ecosystems actually depend on periodic disturbance to continue adapting to circumstances and you actually increase the species diversity and things like that. Um, so people talk about, yeah, I wanna disrupt this industry. Well, what are they talking about? They're talking about ecology. So what if you studied ecology? What if you looked at forests that burned down or uh, places where the ice sheets retracted, you know, or, or what have you, or where there's been a catastrophic flood and you watch what's going on and you pay attention, you study what species are coming, how are they interacting, what's going on. That could probably tell you so much about how to disrupt an industry, how to, uh, how to start a new someplace, how to carve out your niche, right? Which is an ecological term uh, uh, to have a good business. <laughs> how do I, or how do I interact with the other businesses that are already here in a way that's gonna be sustainable so, uh, or economically viable. So that's, yeah, that's the focus of my talk is, is all the different ways that I think nature exposure, uh, nature learning, and nature connection are just this huge, totally untapped resource and boon to the business community, to the entrepreneurship community, and of course, also to everyday people who just want need to you know solve their own problems, be they existential or professional or personal. Um, and so, I, I yeah, it, it's part of that effort of me trying to remind, especially a certain group of people who I think have a lot of power to make a difference, that nature has this enormous value just to us directly and then also you know hopefully uh uh engendering in them uh more of that cultural intrinsic connection too that would be the next step you know and i think if you get business people ceos and entrepreneurs thinking about these issues realizing how much that can help them you can get you know people who are really behind a lot of these big drives uh, economically and culturally to also care. And that, and that kind of, you know, that, that might be a good, a good, uh, bottom down, or sorry, top down kind of way of, um, of approaching some of that cultural change. Oh, I'm inspired. I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to go into the woods now. I'm so inspired. You absolutely should do it. Do it. Go see some cool birds, <laughs> find a, find a neat bug in the ground. That's what it's all about. So do you have any, uh, anything else to round this up then guys?
I this is just an aside for me personally to know. Uh, mm-hmm. You said you're a martial artist. What uh, what do you study? So, or what so this art? is um, this is kind of the problem with me wanting to do everything all the time. Is I I I started uh, <laughs> <laughs> I my my two big influences. Are, so I've been studying martial arts for almost twenty years now, and the the two um, the two big influences on me were Bruce Lee, of course, at the beginning. Um, and then a guy named Ueshiba Morihei, who's a was a Japanese incredible martial artist back in the 40s through 70s ish. Um, and and Bruce Lee's main thing, right, was you just you. It's not about pick and choose. It's not about having a style. You need just need to go and and you you find what works and you focus on that. And so for me, it's just been this journey. Where also I try. I, in getting my naturalist and, and scientist career going, I've had to move all the time. And so, and so I'm always ending up in a new place and just like, Oh, well, what can I learn here? So for me, oh, I mean, that's honestly, so <laughs> I don't, I don't have a count of how many martial arts styles I've like studied. Uh, and if I had to say how many of them I've, you know, like studied pretty seriously for a, a amount of time and, you know, achieved some rank in, it's probably 11 or 12. Um, but I started with, you know, Jeet Kune Do and, and Aikido and a lot of traditional Japanese martial arts. Jeet Kune Do, of course, is very modern. That was Bruce Lee's whole thing. Um, and then I got into, you know, wrestling and boxing. Right, yeah. um, right now, you know, with COVID, it's a little hard. But I have a, I have a closed community here, um, a tribal run gym of a lot of really just great people who are wrestlers and Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioners. Um, I have a lot of background in and I have a, a brown belt in karate and a couple of black belts in Aikido and um, I did Muay Thai. I started doing Muay Thai a few years ago, really loved it. And that's just been a, a big passion of mine. So out here lately, I've been, you know, learning jujitsu and working on my grappling a lot, uh, and kind of MMA applications and then, uh, teaching you're a bit of wrong, Muay Thai. You're on the wrong podcast. Striking. You should be on Joe Rogan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is, this yeah. Is a lot to that, so that's what it's been well, for me. A lot of different styles. Um, yeah. and they all feed into each other. You know, I, I find, truths above all of them that yeah. kind of feed in. I, I assume you must have some some interest as well. Well, yeah, I I study uh, it's, oh, nice. it's Ishinru karate. It was developed in the 50s in Okinawa, and I have a black belt in that. But I've also studied, it's hard to explain, but it's like a combatives, uh, this guy that's very high in combatives and travels around the world. But he sort of cherry picks from all these different styles. And I guess earlier to take it back to nature you you know you were discussing you know how we can get Mm. influence from nature and and like my understanding is that's sort of how the martial arts developed was you know studying how animals uh defend oh my gosh yeah wow that's a that's a big time you really rounded it up you put a bow on it it together (laughs) but yeah you're totally right all those old kung fu styles and a lot of the, the ancient stuff and you know the the yoga and, and old Indian practices that a lot of them are thought to be the predecessors of a lot of traditional martial arts. Yeah. So much of that came from watching animals fight. And as a behavioral ecologist, for me, it's always interesting, you know, studying animal beha- behavior and looking at the way fighting goes on with animals um, and, and conflict and things like that. We've still got a lot to learn, I think, beyond just techniques and how to hurt somebody, but also in how they approach it. You know? <laughs> right. you, don't, you don't see animals going around doing you know mass shootings and and stuff like that it's it's very different fighting is often very uh what's the word for it, they, it it's very ritualized they you know even animals that really get at it and go at you know um 
within species. Usually it's, they find ways to do it, to solve their differences without real, real violence. Even if it looks very violent, um, it's not typically that deadly. And then, you know, predators and prey, the whole, whole different thing. It's, it's never about sadism or, or, you know, there's no ego to it. It's just like, Oh, I see that mouse. It's dead. Okay. I'm going to get my meal. We're moving on. There's no crap involved. You know, I, th- I think, I think we get humans in violence. We get wrapped up in, in weird egotistical ways and, I think we still have a lot to learn from that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Well, uh, anything else? Feeling fully inspired? Wow. I mean, I got to thank you guys for for being here and especially for having me. I I, seriously, I really, I love your music. I'm probably going to be listening to it. I got a nice long drive coming up. I'm going to listen to that album a couple more times. Fantastic (laughs) stuff. Really. Awesome. Thank you. It's so nice to meet yeah, you. Yeah, likewise. Chat we with can you. be in touch, yeah. especially once I once I'm a little closer to you. Yeah. Are you yeah, going to yeah, yeah. be in Athens? That's actually where we no recorded way. our record. So. Oh my um, gosh. Okay. I'm gonna. Yeah, yeah. There's a brew. There's a. There's. A, I don't know if you drink beer, but there's a brewery down there called Creature Comforts. Ironic. No relation. Just, uh, <laughs> no coincidence. Yeah, no All right. I mean, you're right. I. Are you guys maybe going to tour through Georgia at some point? All right. Okay. Eventually. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. eventually. Yeah, it would be yeah. amazing to see you guys live. You're really, on the I, list, brother. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, Especially, that was a candle, I think. I'm trying to remember the name of the track. I was too busy listening. No, I'm telling you. There was oh, that wow. One, and then, um, I Won't Last or something, or I'm Not Going to Last Long. What was it? Those two. Yeah, Dude. I will last forever. Yeah. yeah, I was just I won't last forever. Yeah, I, I was won't going last on a forever. Walk yesterday and just like absolutely vibing to that. So I I can't thank you enough for your for your music and your talent. You guys, hey, are great. hell yeah, thank you. Those are like the, those are the really the B side songs too, I man. Like I, I appreciate that. Them. I always like the, <laughs> well, I I like them, I, man. I love them. Did you like any of my songs, Charles? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Many, I mean, admittedly, I haven't or? I haven't heard as many yet because I, I usually get through the podcast and then like 50 minutes in, I'm like, oh crap, I gotta go, you know. So I gotta listen to more of the actual okay. songs. But <laughs> all right, then. but I've been loving the interviews. Um, like what was her name? Ma- uh, Madhu, uh, that incredible journalist you interviewed. Um, Madhu Trehan. There were a couple of. You're just trying to. Yes. You don't have to make it up to me. It's all right. Don't. No, no, no. The band's the star up, here. I understand. I, it's okay. When you contacted it's me, okay. I was like, don't worry, Charles. Like... Don't, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> the faces you're making me at right now. But no, I mean, I, I, uh, yeah, and I can't, can't thank you guys enough for the opportunity. I mean, I really, uh, you've had some real heavy hitters uh, on the podcast. Some incredible conversations. Um, and I couldn't be more grateful to be a part of it. So thank you. Well, f- thanks for coming on. Thanks for it's been great having you. I'll stick around with the band for a minute. We'll talk about the song behind your back. Excellent. And then we'll send it to you as soon <laughs> as it's done. Sounds good. Well, again, I uh, yeah appreciate right, your Charles. time. And- All right. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. Oh, great, eh? So feeling inspired? You've got any ideas for the song? Because we have to. Um, we have to think of a particular angle here because, I mean, we cover yeah. so much. Where well, are we going to go with it? I mean, I guess in, in I'm assuming we're not the first collaboration that you've done. I mean, I know you've been doing most of these. You're yourself. not the first notch on my bedpost. Okay, that's that's good. So, I mean, do you normally write the lyrics when you do this or how? What's your preferred? Well, 
song, songs I've, I've done so many I have so, so, sort of a bodily function now sort of a song comes out afterwards um, and then I can send it to you and, and, it, and you do the same maybe you have one and then we'll decide on one okay or sometimes it's a middle and a verse and you take the chorus and I got gotcha. you um, however it goes I mean I don't really have any ideas for for what this could be about yet i mean you've got to look for that angle though i mean yeah you know you, you know when you're writing lyrics you really need that i know i keep thinking about that yeah, yeah the small town like. stuff things changing yeah. things and it can i mean that could lend itself to being pretty depressing i think but i think we can <laughs> make the choruses angle it in a hopeful there's so much hope yeah. there too so, right i was walmart's this brimming uh, with ideas invasive franchises yeah, I was like, I'm really yeah. feeling... Because uh, humans are the invasive species here. You know, we are the... Yeah. Right. Yeah, but... But now we're being, you know, even we're dying out, so yeah. you know, our culture and... I, I think about it too, like... Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think of the structure, and it's like, well, there's uh, I, like a uh, perspective of someone living in a smaller community and seeing it change. Yeah. You can see it change from, you know, the destruction of land and mm -hmm. like the disappearance of mom and pop stuff yeah and um Ooh. try to think about how you could shift that from each verse um of a verse that you know make it a, a progression of some sort um hard to say yeah. put into words what i mean but um yeah there's so much imagery in that yeah walking down the street mom pops boarded up yeah it's the and the spring that used to play in when you were a kid is now walmart yeah and the, um, the wells run dry wells run the, dry and you can't drink the water here because yeah. the you know the mining up the road has polluted all the yeah. fresh water and so you could there's a a line in a this robert Bly poem about a a tree that's fallen and the the hole in the tree is now uh facing upward catching rain mm. which i mean that's obviously gonna go like you don't want to take that long to unpack something yeah. like that but like that sort of hopefulness within despair kind of thing mm. yeah it has to be hopeful like the chorus has to be totally yeah that's what i'm thinking yeah, yeah i would like to bring it back for i mean the verses can kind of ruminate on like Oh, this sucks. Why this has changed? This is not good. And then you know, in your choruses, you can yeah um, figure out yeah. a hook that is shift to a major or something. You know, and kind of uplift it. Sounds like it's in good hands, guys. We'll figure something out. We'll figure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been a real pleasure. I really had a great time yeah. with you. Yeah, of course. Uh, thanks for having us on. Yeah, I really fun. appreciate was the opportunity. Uh, how'd you How'd you find us? I guess that's what I'm really curious about. You were on a playlist, uh, I think. Uh, oh, Big Buff and Handsome was on a nice. Spotify playlist, and we have that's... a researcher that goes through and uh, and finds suitable wow. tracks. And that's Googled, awesome. Googled, I'm feeling lucky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I was just, I was just curious. Well, this is this is really cool, and uh, I think it's really cool what you're doing. And thank you. And you can self-produce, yeah. You're. Um, yeah, I, I can, yeah. we can't track drums. Um, that's the only right. thing I can't track. But I, okay. I mean, it depends well, we on can, what yeah, we can we do. Just, that I mean, it depends what we. I mean, you want to go what kind of genre as well? I mean, what you want to stick with? What? Because I mean, you uh, could do uh, boot gazing or disco roadie. I mean, what we can. I mean, I feel like it's, it's. It might be too hard to tell that. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. 
love to flesh let's just it go out. with what the song has yeah let's just go we'll with play something and yeah. but i think if it's going to be that sort of small town thing keep it a little it's being acoustic keep it yeah. a little yeah yeah definitely an acoustic no guitar banjo, at some but... point oh yeah you could play banjo slide guitar. i want banjo in there <laughs> definitely <laughs> banjo. mournful slide guitar yeah or banjo. brilliant guys oh, i can't wait it's gonna be so exciting awesome great yeah we'll talk soon all right Thanks. take care all right. bye 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 guys what a track what an episode a modern classic please follow creature comfort on spotify go to their website follow them instagram facebook all the links are in the show notes thanks guys it was a real pleasure 
And thanks also to musicians Massimino Vozzo, who played drums on that, and Maurizio San Nicola, who played the organs and also produced it. As always, please share this episode with anyone you think might enjoy it. Please share the song. It'll be released on the 3rd of December on all music streaming services. Um, Do everything you can to help promote the show. We really appreciate it. And if you want to hear another great podcast, please go to Mystic Cast, which is the show that I use to promote the Ethereum Society, who helped inspire me to do this podcast. Okay, until next time, have a great day.